and we're going to see what the Lord will teach us. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. And as you're getting there, I want us to consider a few things. And if I go long, just keep your finger right there. So don't put your Bible down because we will get to the text. For most of you, you are here on a weekly basis for congregational worship, to hear from God's Word, to sing about God's Word, to pray through God's Word with God's people. For some of you, it might have been a couple of weeks since you've been in a congregational meeting. But I want us to take a travel, I want us to, take, to travel to the context of where we are in the book of Nehemiah as the people would be gathered for congregational worship. This would have been the first time that they've done it in centuries. Can you imagine not coming to church and being in this environment where you hear God's word and worship with God's people for anywhere between 130 to 300 years? They have not had an opportunity to do so. But God puts them in a position to where they are able to gather and hence reads God's word in Nehemiah 8, chapter 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, you guys ready? Here's, here's names that you want to consider uh, for your children. Mathetheah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maseah on his right hand. Padea, Mishael, Malikajah, Hashum, Hashabadana, Zechariah, okay, that's a, that's a common one, and Meshulam on the left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people when he opened it. All the people stood up, and Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, or Akub, 
um, Shabbathi, Hodiah, Messiah, or Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peleah, the Levites, were proving or were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book of from the law of God, explaining, giving insight, they provided understanding of the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who provided the people with understanding said to the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate with great gladness, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Let's pray. Our great God and our Father, we come before you with the confidence, not we have inherently, but the confidence that your Son, Jesus Christ, has accomplished for us, our High Priest, about whom we read and about whom we prayed early on this service. So we come to the throne of your grace to ask, that you may provide for us insight to your word, to the words which we have read. For we understand that it is your word, and your word describes your nature, and in your word we sense your presence. And therefore, Father, make us understand these words by the power of your Spirit. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have been coming to church for, for a while, you are accustomed to what this is, what we're doing right now, congregational worship. But why have you considered, actually, why we gather together besides the fellowship? We like, we like the fellowship. Um, we like maybe the songs because they can be entertaining even. Right? But why do we gather together to worship? This week I actually ran across a, a YouTube short of a preacher um, who was talking about worship, because when we think about worship, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Music, which is a, an element of worship in a congregational setting or even in our lives. Music is an important aspect of worship. We talked about it last week. 
But when we think about worship, it is about music. So the, that preacher um, was saying, someone walked up to him and said, Hey, you preach for such a long time. When do you have time for worship? Like you preach for so long. When does your church actually worship? To which the preacher said, you preach for so short, how do you know what worship is? And I thought it was so funny, and I did not know who to share it with without being so offensive. I shared it with Kyle. I think this happened on Friday, and he laughed at 4 a.m. on Saturday morning. Uh, and, um, but anyways, I thought that, that was funny. You preach for so long, when do you have time for worship? And this guy says, you preach, you preach so little. How do you know what worship is? So I say all of that to say, when we think about congregational worship, the reason you might be coming back every week could be because of the music, could be because of the fellowship. But in this passage, I want us to see together what congregational worship looks like. What is biblical congregational worship? Where does that model come from? Why do we gather together the way we do? We assemble together. And then why does this church specifically, because right, I'm talking to this church right now, this local body, you guys in front of me, why do we do the things that we do each week? Why is it designed the way it is designed? Why do we come up here and somebody, a brother comes up and, and, and stands behind this pulpit and says, okay, let's now turn our attention to worship and then read a passage of scripture to call us to, to call our attention to worship. And then the, the, the music ministry comes and sings a song and leads us into a song and we sing together. And then after that, we, we come back and then we read the scripture again. We pray again. Why is it designed that way? Actually, this was a question posed to me. Um, some time ago, a few months back, one of you came up to me after service and said, Hey, Manny, why, why are we standing and sitting and standing and sitting and standing and sitting every five minutes? Like we, why don't we just lump all the songs together at the front end and then do the reading on the back end and then, and then kind of just call it a day? Which is a legitimate question. Why do we have this model of worship? In our passage today, we will see why that is. The other question is, why are you, and this, is, this comes actually from, not, not from, from you directly, this is something that comes from your parents or the adults. Or this is something that you are thinking about or you're not asking. Why do we do church like this with young people why aren't we doing because this can be considered youth ministry right why aren't we doing activities to whom is congregational worship we have this mindset that congregational worship is for the adults you know the grown-ups you know the people that got bills the people that actually can, are, are, are mature in Christ, 
this kind of congregational worship where you pray and then you sing and you read your Bible and then you pray some more and then somebody stands up and preaches for 45 minutes. By the way, bear with me. I don't even have my timer today. If you noticed, I, I'm not preaching from my iPad. So I have no idea when, when to stop. Um, I'll, I'll try though, right? So I'm just winging it. But this kind of this kind of service is for whom? It's for the adults. That's not for people that are. I want us to sh- to see in Scripture. I want to show you in this passage who congregational worship is for. Thirdly, what I want to see together with you, and I want to show you is what is your part in congregational worship. Yeah, I get it. When somebody comes up and says, open your Bible to Psalm 119, verse 97. And then I, that's my response. Okay, that's my part as a congregation. And then when somebody comes up and says, let's read our scripture reading for today from, from Hebrews chapter 4. Let's stand. And everybody stands. And I actually have to say, let's stand. And, and then we turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And then when, when the music team comes up and when the choir comes up and says, stand and sing this song with me, and then is that the only responsibility of the congregation? And then when that ends, when service ends, that's it. I've fulfilled my responsibility for, the con- for congregational worship, and I just go on about my day. And then, But I want to show you from this passage that there is an, an expected outcome for the congregation because of congregational worship. So the first thing I want us to consider is the content of congregational worship. So the first three verses in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 give us somewhat of a summary of the whole event. What we cannot deny is that this chapter is telling us about congregational worship. We cannot deny that. But the first three verses give us a summary, and then uh, the, uh, verses 4 through 8 kind of fill in the details for us. What exactly happened? So as we consider the content, let's look down to chapter 8 verse 1, the people gathered congregationally as one man. And then they said to Ezra, the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh has commanded to Israel. Bring us the Torah. Bring us the word of God. What is the content of their assembly? It's the word of God. That's what they asked for. So when they gather together, by the way, if, if you read the, the uh, rest of Nehemiah, um, somewhere about 50,000 was the population of Jerusalem at the time. This was the exiles um, who, who returned, the remnant, um, if, you, if you will. About 50,000 people gathered together. And they ask for what? 
entertainment? Do they ask for the musicians? They ask for the word of God. Which, in contrast, by the way, <laughs> reminded me of these people were so eager to hear from God. They weren't like their ancestors in, in Exodus chapter 32 when the people of Israel gathered together and they came to the leader, the first Levite, by the way, the first priest, Aaron, the first high priest to be ordained as a high priest in Israel. They come to him and they gather together and they make a request. Just like this, there's a parallel here. What do they say? Build us a God to go before us. So we, the, something that we see in front of us. Contrast that with the attitude and what these people are asking. They wanted the scriptures. Unlike, unlike their ancestors, they ask Ezra. By the way, Ezra is referred to us here as a scribe, as a priest, and it goes back and forth, the scribe and the priest. Right? Ezra is described for us in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, as one who had set his heart to study the Scriptures, to practice it, and to teach it to others. So they, they recognize who this man is. Israel is, is a scribe. He's a priest. And he has set his heart to study the scriptures and practice it and teach it. So they come to him and they say, bring us the book of the law of Yahweh. They ask for the Torah. And when they ask him, what does he do in verse, verse 2? Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Then what does he do? Look, look down uh, and verse 5, and then Ezra opened the book. By the way, this word open the book, it's, it's for, uh, for our sake. He wasn't opening a book like this. He was more or less unrolling a scroll. He opens the book in the sight of the, all the people. And when he opened it, people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and the people answered. And then he read from it. Then those who were around him were providing. When you're reading this, by the way, let me ask you, are you hearing? Are you seeing Ezra doing this? What is the story about? Ezra is kind of like hiding behind, like he's fading out in the story. And the word of God is the one that takes center place. They read, verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God. Not counted how many times Ezra was listed in, in this passage. And Ezra was listed one way or another about six times. But God's word was listed more than Israel was listed by one, seven times. You can count it if you want. But the emphasis here is on the content of what was read and what was communicated, what they were hungry about. So 
So the content of congregational worship is God's word. God's concern is about his word. His people are told to listen to his word and to obey it and to follow it. It's not entertainment. It's not the music. But they gathered around a word. Because the word of God is active and living, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 4 in our scripture reading today. By the way, this is not only uh, an Old Testament order of worship. If you were just thinking, oh, this is to Israel, turn with me real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 13. The Apostle Paul is here giving instructions to his disciple, his spiritual son even, and how to conduct himself, how to conduct himself in the church, what the church is supposed to do. And here's what he tells him. Until I come, he tells him, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This does not discount prayer, by the way, he said men all everywhere should be praying, does not discount the role of music and congregational worship. But in the church, what should you be paying attention to? Give attention to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. So the content of congregational worship, again, going to 2 Timothy, flip a few pages, in chapter 4. Here's what he tells him, verse 2. If you're in 1 Timothy, just flip a few pages. Here's what he tells Timothy in his second epistle to him, in his second letter. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. This is a charge that he gives them. If you read verse 1, he starts off by saying, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead and the appearing of his kingdom. Preach the word. That's what he, the, the, the Timothy is told. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. Because the word of God is not only living and active in and of itself, but every scripture, all scripture. If you're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you would see it. All scripture, chapter 3, verse 16, is God-breathed. It's God's own breath that's in the scriptures. Some translations might have it inspired by God, but that inspiration is not like the inspiration that you get from the influencer on Instagram. 
But this inspiration is more or less talking about the very breath that comes out of somebody, like that, that kind of breath. God's own spirit is in his word. God's own breath is in his word. And therefore, the content of, of our congregational worship is scripture. So who is it for? Is it for us that are adults? Is that what we see? Who gathered? Who is the part of the congregation? Who should be a part of the congregation? Who should be the part of our congregation? Because a lot of times people would come here and they would see a lot of young people and they would get discouraged and they would say, oh, no, this is kind of like youth church or this is kind of like, um, you know, it's, 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 they're, they're too young here. Who is God's congregation? Is there an age limit in the congregation of God? What is God's community? That's the second part that I want us to consider. Look down with me who, who gathered together. All the people gathered as one man. That should already tell us, this is telling us about a community. And who came? Verse 3. He read the scriptures in the presence of men and women. That is to be understood as adult men and adult women, right? But wait, there's another group. All those who could understand when listening. That's actually in verse 2. He says it twice in verse 2 and verse 3. Then Israel the priest brought the law before, before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening. When I'm communicating to you, when I'm talking to you, are you able to grasp what I'm saying. Like, do you understand what I'm saying or is it just going over your head? So the implication here is not just the adults that are part of God's assembly. That is not just for the adults that we do congregational worship. It's for everyone. Including what we would consider in our society, children. So long as you are able to understand when listening. But we are so accustomed of our culture who tells us, no, everything has to be done according to the need of the child. You know, like some of you might even have parent-teacher conferences. I heard somebody talk about the other day what is it, student-led conference, where it's like, like I, I, it was a foreign idea from, to me. I kind of know about it, right? Where the student is leading the parent-teacher conference. It's like, this is not a parent-teacher conference thing. <laughs> like, we might as well just change it, right? Because parent-teacher conferences, when I remember, if I remember correctly, used to be as the parents 
The kids ain't even supposed to be there. And the teachers. That, this is how it used to be. And the teacher would tell us about our kids, and we tell them about the, uh, uh, about, we talk about them, and we find out what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, and we come up with a plan on how to do it. Now it's the kids. Okay, fine. But who leads it, right? And then we, we are also accustomed of this age group things, which, by the way, those of you that are younger, you are in for a rude awakening. Talk to the people that are in the workforce right now. Ask them if everybody that works with them is, is, uh, has the same worldview or is the same age and what have you, right? Because everybody kind of just moves together. Like, you know, everybody in first grade is either seven or eight, and everybody is in second grade or whatever the age is. And everybody is kind of like that. And then we adopt that ideology into the church. And then we say, you know what? We got second grade Sunday school. We got third grade Sunday school. And then we kind of just make these things playful in a way. I get it. The younger children don't, may not understand. They have different um, capacity of, of, of attention even, which is not that much different than most of the adults now. Right? I mean, thank God for social media, right? Our attention span is shot to the point where we can't sit here and listen to a 40, 45-minute, 50-minute sermon. Or even if I dumbed it down to 15 minutes, I'm sure there would be more people checking out every 20 seconds and kind of just like jolting themselves back to it. Our attention span, the adult's attention span is shot too, right? That's because we are not trained. We're not considering what God's Word is saying. God's congregation is not limited to a certain group of people, certain level of understanding, a certain level of elitism. It's for men and women and all who can understand it. So don't sell yourself short because you are in middle school and you're like, oh, no, but the other church does it differently. You know, when we go and we have uh, games and then they throw a little bit of Jesus in there and then we kind of just have fun. And then we kind of get scripture too, and, and, and we retain it. This is not the model that we see in this passage. This is not the scriptural passage that we get. It might work. It might even help you grow. Maybe. Very, very doubtful, but maybe. But just because something is seems to work or something is fun does not mean that it's biblical or right in the sight of God. If we are going to worship God, we must worship him in spirit and in truth according to his word. So the content leads us into the community. It's everybody. that is invited to come and have congregational worship. Everyone who could understand while listening. Much to say about this, but because I don't have my watch set, 
I'll press on. What should be our response? As we see this content of, of God. By the way, actually, let me, let me just back up when, when I talk about the community. Go, go, go read with me um, verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. I mean, they just, they just stood up. They weren't asked to stand. They just stood up. And then, when he was teaching, their ears were, back in verse 3, all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. I just wanted to point those two things out. It was attentive to the book of the law. They paid so much attention to the details of their response, to what is being said, to the content, that they understood when God's word is being spoken or read or explained or taught or preached. It's not a religious exercise where people are just kind of used to it. They took it as it being equivalent to God himself being in the room. Not because of Ezra. Not even because of the material that the words were written in. Not because of custom. But they stood up in awe and worship. Which leads me really to the response. And I wanted to get all C words. And so I have it as confession, but this is more or less, I wanted us to, to remember it, attention span, duh, right? It's like, oh, we learned about the three C's, okay? We learned about the content, the community, and <sighs> response is like CCR, oh, that could have been catchy. But what is the response? What is the appropriate response for congregational worship? Let's draw this out out of the text as we saw in verse 3. They were attentive to the book of the law. They paid attention to it. That Their ears perked up when they heard God's word. You know, a lot of times our ears can tell us what our hearts love. How many of you have been in a conversation with, with someone and then there's another conversation happening in your vicinity and then you kind of just tune out immediately to listen to the other conversation because a word or something, like some, some trigger just goes off and you're like, I'm, I'm talking to you and you see me talk and you might even be nodding like this, but you're listening to the other conversation there. You know, it could be about anything. Happens to me all the time. 
And this is so visual. He says, the ears of them, all the ears of the people were attentive. So the ears, they heard it and they were like, no, then nothing is, nothing can distract them at that moment. That's the imagery here. When, when God's word is being read, when God's word is being preached, no outside noise could get in. That's what we see here. When Ezra prays, he opens it, and then he blesses Yahweh, by the way, just to, to give you an insight to what blessing Yahweh means. It's not like, you know, when, when somebody blesses you, they're adding some kind of value to you. That's usually the um, idea that we're communicating. But blessing Yahweh or blessing God, when you read that in the, in, in the Bible, when you hear somebody say, all they're doing is they're speaking words of excellence about that person. So what Ezra is saying is he's speaking words of excellence, his majesty, his glory, his holiness, his blessedness, his transcendence, his magnificence. That's all he's saying. God is holy. Which, in, in another way, another way to take this is Ezra prayed after reading the Bible. Now, have you ever wondered why we pray a lot? Why we open the Bible and then after we read the scripture, then we say, close your eyes and bow your head. And we're just following the, what scripture models for us. Because we think this is literally true. And I don't mean literally the way that you guys say literally. I heard somebody say, I was literally dead. I'm like, no, you weren't. Because if you were, you wouldn't be talking to me right now. Because someone to be literally dead, that means you stop breathing. Your heart is no longer pumping blood. Your brain function is stopped. That means you are in the grave or at least at the funeral home being prepared for the grave. That's what it literally dead means. So we use that word literally, illiterally, if that makes sense. Just very loosely. But when we read our Bibles, when we come to congregational worship, what God's word says, we take it literally. It is God's word. It's nobody else's word. It's not my words. It's not my ideas. This is a divine word. We take it seriously. And because they took it seriously, look at their response in verse, um, we, we looked at it in verse 5. When he opened it up, all the people stood up. In verse 6, he prays. And the people say, Amen, Amen, twice for emphasis. Not just once. The word Amen or Amen, however you say it, depending on your sanctification level. Simply means true. 
And part of my job, I was talking to a brother on Friday, part of my job, so to speak, in studying and preparing for for a, a message on Sundays, for a sermon on Sunday, is to, to go back to what what this was 445 B.C., get the meaning from there, and then bring it to 2023, right? So to bring it to 2023, when someone in your conversation says something so true, what do you say now? Facts, right? Uh, I was asked, and I just, it just, it just, now I'm I'm so used to it. Right? When someone says something that you agree with, you say facts. You don't say facts, facts for emphasis. But if you keep saying facts about anything that anybody says, you're agreeing with them. That's what these people are doing. They hear God's word being read and preached and taught and explained. And they're agreeing with everything that Ezra is saying. He's praying through the scriptures. He's saying God is holy. He's saying that God is transcendent. He is above all. He he has done all things. He has brought us back from exile. He has helped us in the context of this. He has helped us from all kinds of malice that was from our neighbors that were trying to infiltrate and stop us from building a wall, stop us from building uh, uh, the, the temple. They, they wanted us to go back and they, they said mean things about us, false things about us. And they, they manipulated our, our intentions and they tried to get us back into slavery. And God kept us from that because he is sovereign over all of these things. And he's blessing God's name and they're saying facts. Amen. Amen. But if you if you were, if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't be able to know what exactly you agreed with. And I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, most of us, when somebody is praying up here, we're completely disengaged. We don't know that that person could say. God, if, if I sin twice this week, please bring like all the kinds of calamities in Jesus' name. And then you would say, Amen. Like, dude, like, did you know what you just agreed with? Like, we're that disengaged. But their attention that was told to us in verse 3 is the reason why they were hearing this and they're saying, Amen and Amen. And in the natural response to what is being told, what God has done for you and for them is what? What do, what do they do? They lift up their hands. It's, it's almost like kind of like involuntary I'm, when you think about it. It's not a religious sign of I'm more sanctified to lift up my hands. It's a a response from my body, from my emotions of what God has done. If God's name is being lifted up and exalted. And you're affirming, you're co-signing that. And you're like, yes, let's do it.
almost in every culture, when somebody is affirming something positive about, they get up and they raise their hands. You know, we talked about how there was about 50,000 people in, in this congregation, and they, they're doing that. I was a part of one yesterday virtually, and most of us may have been one, one or the other. What happens? 50,000 people gather together, and it's a sporting event. And the team scores. Yes. It's not, nobody's, nobody comes up to the middle of the field and be like, okay, everybody, let's raise our hands to celebrate this goal, to affirm that something that has happened is great. No, it's, 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 it's in, almost involuntary. Everybody gets up and they, yes, we agree with that goal, or with that basket, with that field goal, or with that touchdown or whatever. Or you go to a concert because you're not into sports. And your favorite song comes on by your favorite artist. And they're performing it. Your hands go up. Like, what happened? You're agreeing with everybody. Everybody. This is a natural response of affirming God's holiness when you're paying attention to what God is doing among you, when you're paying attention to God's word, the content of congregational worship, you are lost in it. That you don't even care who's watching you, who's not. And this is what's happening. They lift up their hands, then they bow low. And that, now, now, mind you, they bow low and worship Yahweh with their faces to the ground. So there's this level of excitement, but there's level of humility that happens. At the same time, it's simultaneously happening. That's the response. And that's why most people like churches who get you emotionally aroused. Like they, they just pump you up, right? The loud music, bass is going, you know, they got the drums and they got they got the full band, and then they just they just going. You start jumping, you know, raising hands, fine. And you keep going and going and going and going and going 45 minutes. You don't even realize you're standing for 45 minutes. And then we mistake that for worship. They bow low and worship Yahweh with their faces to the ground. True worship creates a level of humility, a response from your heart, from your soul, from your spirit, from within you that shows you that Yahweh is great and he needs to be worshipped. And I am, I am nowhere close to actually coming in front of him and to worship him. 
and it puts you in the right perspective so you don't just just flippantly walk into his presence that way. And as the word is being explained to them, here's the response, mourning and weeping. End of verse 9. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. When God's word is being explained, and I'm taking that as, as a given, this is why every time we get together, by the way, and I stand up here, I read the scripture, or whoever is behind this pulpit, and they give sense to the words, providing understanding of the law, giving insight, explaining it, not just reading it, right? This is what's happening right now as we speak. I'm explaining it. I'm giving insight to it. Not that I'm drawing the insight out of it, actually, is more appropriate. It's not that I'm bringing my insight and I'm inserting into it. I'm drawing the insight of the, the, the word for that insight, actually, is uh, it, it, it was fascinating when I was studying this. It's giving the intended meaning by the author. That's the word for insight. What did the author intend to communicate when he wrote this? That's what these Levites were doing. And that's what we strive to do. That's what I strive to do. And that's what anybody behind this pulpit strives to do. And as much as God gives us grace. As that is being done among them, what happens? They start weeping. They start mourning. And the reason for their sorrow is that they realize what was being explained to them, they weren't doing. When they understood what God intends for His people and they compared it to their lives, fills their heart with sorrow because they understand they have broken God's law. They have defiled His presence. They have dishonored Him. When you dishonor somebody, you are immediately, if you're sensible, that is, filled with sorrow and you are apologetic about it. This is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that godly sorrow produces repentance. This is what's happening. When they came to congregational worship, when the people of Israel came to congregational worship and they saw God's word exposed, explained, and, and expounded, to them, 
they felt godly sorrow. And they were filled with grief to the point where Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and all the scribes who were providing the people with understanding, said, don't be sad. Now, when they're saying, don't be sad, they weren't just saying, no, you should be glad about your sinfulness. You should be glad about not meeting God's standards. They weren't just excusing that. They weren't just winking at their sin. Their emphasis was always about what God is doing in between, in, in, in among, in, in amongst them. This day is holy to Yahweh. So don't mourn or weep. Don't be grieved in verse 10. For the joy of Yahweh is your strength. The reason why you shouldn't be grieved is because God himself is going to restore your joy. Because he is your strength and his joy is, his, is your strength. Verse 11, be still. For the day is holy. Don't be grieved. So they tell him, don't be sad three times based on who God is and what he has accomplished. Not based on what they can do about, about it or not. So we see here as a response of congregational worship, this, this paradoxical approach to it. It looks like, wait. I'm, I'm sad, but I'm being told I'm happy. I should be sad about my sin, but, but then again, I'm, I'm supposed to be joyful. It looks like it's a contradiction, but it's actually not a contradiction based on second look. We see this because godly sorrow produces repentance, and that is the source of joy. Because God grants you repentance. Because God, if you're truly sorry about your sin, and if His Word that is active and living, sharper than a double-edged sword, really cuts deeply into your heart, and He shows you where and how and who, and then you notice that that's where you failed Him, and then as an obedient child, you feel sorry about that sin, truly, He grants you repentance. He gives you access to Him through Christ Jesus, which He has not done to some, which He does not do to some. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. Esau was denied repentance, even though he sought it out with tears. You guys know the story of Esau? who sold his birthright for some, uh, I want to I taste that lentil meal that Jacob prepared. I think it's more than a lentil meal. It's just about the condition of the heart. So he sells his birthright, and he realizes what he's done is wrong, and he goes and he seeks after God, would you please restore this to me? And he's seeking it with emotions, with tears. And God says he was not granted repentance. Yeah, you're sad about it, but guess what? 
no access access denied. So what the Nehemiah and Israel and the Levites are saying to the, to Israel and what I'm saying to us today is that once you realize that you have done what God expects you not to do or you have not done what God expects you to do, once His Word convicts you through His Spirit and you come to the place where you are sad about it, heartbroken about it, be glad because He has granted you repentance through Christ Jesus. We don't have a high priest who is sinful himself. We have a high priest in Christ, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, who sympathizes with us, who were tempted, who was tempted every way that you and I are tempted, but still without sin, the lamp without blemish. And we have His blood sprinkled all over us. So we can actually have access to God and we can be granted repentance only through Him. That joy, my friends, is our strength that actually brings us to God. Yes, I'm heartbroken about the times that I've sinned this week. Yes, I have, I'm so sinful. I'm broken about this thing that I cannot shake, it seems like. But I am glad that Jesus died for that sin, and He gives me His righteousness. I can go celebrating I can go away eating and drinking and sending portions. By the way, these things are just euphemisms as well of daily lives. Once you come to congregational worship, when you go and live your daily lives, you live in light of what you have learned in congregational worship. It's supposed to be transferred to the way that you behave tomorrow until next Sunday I see you or from, from this time, when this time is over, until next Sunday, uh, whenever you, we meet again, it's supposed to be transferred to that. What ends up happening, I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, is that our ears are not attentive enough. We don't consider it to be ourselves as, as, as part of God's community enough and we don't have this kind of confession enough to where we just come here maybe for like a little like hit of dopamine or something. And then we get excited on Sundays and then keep going down from Monday through Saturday. This is supposed to be translated into your daily lives. Eat drink, send portions to those who have nothing prepared. And go and celebrate with great gladness. Why? Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. God has made Himself known to you. 
and congregational worship. You confess your sin, you repent, and you go with gladness, celebrating, because he has made himself known to you. He has made his word known to you. If you hear God's word and you realize that you have offended God, the natural response, scratch that, the supernatural response, because it's not a natural response to apologize for, for something we do wrong, right? What is our natural response when you do something wrong? Why didn't you do this? Uh, because, um, you know, I was just tired and, you know, I, I had this to do and that to do and this. That's the natural response. But when we offend God, the supernatural blessed response is to be brokenhearted about our sin. But be glad that it happened. Because God is your strength. God is the source of your joy. God is the one who gives you understanding to the word. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ himself says in the Sermon of the Mount. I want to see that together with you. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. This is where we'll finish today. Jesus tells his disciples. Jesus tells us. Jesus tells you. And I use us and you intentionally, by the way, because Jesus personally has died for you. He didn't just like an abstract die for you. Like your name is written in the book of life if you have come to faith in him. Like your name is written literally, individually. They're not just, it's, just, it's just not written as like the book of Christians. And then you're kind of like an obscure number, 787,266. Like when Jesus bled and died, it's individually for you and your soul and your sin, each and every single one of you. So when he says this, he's saying it to you. When he says that he is going to prepare a place for you, when you think of the feast and he's preparing a place for you, a seat for you, and you will be seated with him, literally there's a seat with your name on it. Right now, if you trust in Jesus. So pay attention to what he says. Blessed are those who mourn. That word blessed is happy. Happy are those who mourn. In what world 
do happy and mourning work together in the kingdom of God, for they shall be comforted. Friends, this is why we do congregational worship. To come and be fed and be established and be nourished by the word of God as is being read, as is being sang, as is being explained, as is being prayed, focused, attentively gripped by the word. All of us, as long as we are able to understand it, no matter where we are, so that we can partake in the blessedness of those who mourn and those that are comforted by the joy of Yahweh, which is our strength, and go singing with gladness, living with gladness, eating with gladness, drinking with gladness, sending portions with gladness, because we understand the Word of God. This is why we do congregational worship. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you who are holy, 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 magnificent in every way, you who uphold this universe by your word, have considered us worthy to be called your children. Before the foundation of the earth, you have chosen us in Christ to keep us blameless and holy so that we are presented to you in Him. So, Father, we come to you yielding our selves, our identity, the fullness of who we are to your will as it is explained and expressed in your word and that is applied and empowered by your Spirit in our hearts and our lives. So that you might reign over us. So that gladness and joy can come out of our repentant hearts. As we confess to you this day, your greatness our lowliness, and our dire need for your grace and your mercy. Our great need for your provision, our great need for your protection, our great need for your sanctification and your forgiveness. We come together as one man, to acknowledge these things so that your name can be glorified, that the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, can be honored and proclaimed so that your Spirit can work mightily in us and through us. Father, may this assembly, may this congregation 
continue to grow in the knowledge of your word. May we grow in love for one another. May we grow in joy and gladness to be called your children. We ask you these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.